Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one that restores, uh, that you don't call us orphans, you call us children, your sons and daughters that are beloved. And Lord, we thank you that your word says, great peace have they who loves your, you love your law and nothing will make them stumble. And so God, we pray for these young ones, we pray for ourselves as well, Lord, uh, we confess our hearts are often full of anxieties. We often listen more to the voices and the values of this world than of your word. And so we pray that through your word that we would grow in our love and affection for it, that we might uh, indeed experience your peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, use this time for these young ones and us as well as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we complete our message series in uh, the Word, the Scriptures, as we've been looking at Living Word, Eternal Word, uh, Foundations for Life and Faith. We've been in this series focused on the Scriptures because many people struggle with the nature of Scripture. Uh, they struggle with whether the Bible is true, whether it is God's divine Word, whether we can trust it. And so we've been taking a journey over the course of these last couple of months to help reinforce for us the integrity of God's Word uh, and how it speaks to the core issues and needs of our lives. Uh, today, um, there's out in the uh, foyer a book that's available, and it's called uh, Can I Really Trust the Bible? It's an excellent uh, book that will be a great resource for you. It addresses uh, the issues of what Jesus thought about the Bible, questions about consistency, conspiracies, corruptions, contradictions, and criticism. It has uh, an encouragement of tasting and seeing the sweetness of Scripture. And so it is a, a short volume. It's only $4. Uh, we got a discount on it, and it's a really wonderful resource. You know, Peter tells us uh, that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. Uh, and so this book can be a resource to help you give answers to these, these questions that people have about the scriptures. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Stan reviewed for us from 2 Peter uh, the aspect of how the scriptures are God's perfect word and how he speaks to imperfect men, uh, his perfect word, that the prophets and apostles were not, were not just clever myth makers, but they were regular weak men carried along with the Holy Spirit to speak God's word for us and to us. Uh, but the whole point, the whole purpose of Scripture is that it talks about and points us to Jesus. The Scriptures are all about Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, you have got to know the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus himself said to the uh, apostles after his resurrection, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so if you want to know about Jesus, you've got to learn about the prophets and the Psalms in the book of Moses. And then Paul says this about the scriptures. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly as you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the scriptures are the word of Christ. So if you want to know Jesus, you want to grow in your affections for Christ, you've got to grow in your affections for his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And so today, concluding our series by looking at a portion of God's word from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, it contains 176 verses. We're not preaching the whole psalm. <laughs> it's the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter of the entire Bible, and it is an elaborate, passionate devotion about the word of God. The psalm uses what's called an acrostic. It's a poetic device that breaks the psalm down into 22 uh, stanzas that follow the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's eight verses in each stanza, and uh, it focuses on magnifying and praising God for his word, the wonders, the excellencies, the magnificence of his word. And the psalmist here uh, expresses his love for God's law, uh, his desire to obey it, but he also confesses his own failures to it. And the author uses this whole alphabet of the Hebrew alphabet, not as a, a superficial poetic device. It was used, by the way, to help people memorize Scripture and to memorize that, 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 that psalm. But the author had a theme about God's Word that filled his whole life. It was as big as life. It was arranged uh, around the whole Word of God, and it and the breath of his affections and the breath of his sense of God's word filled uh, the whole of his life as he thought about the, the universe. And God's word, it was not just the ABCs, but it was the A through Zs of the good news, and it was focused all on Jesus. With this, I can't think of no better psalm than Psalm 119 to end our series in, and I can think of no greater need than what the word particularly says about affliction, about suffering. And so let's listen to God's word, the word for affliction. It's the section we'll be looking at is what's called the teth, or the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, starting with verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's the word of the Lord. Thomas Watson was an English pastor, preacher, author who lived in the 1600s, who was one time in prison for his faith. And he says, we are prone in adversity to think harshly about God. In affliction, we are tempted to believe wrong things about God, 
wrong things about affliction and wrong things about his word. And so Psalm 119, and specifically this ninth stanza of the alphabet Teth, the writer goes to battle against the badness against God, the badness against affliction, and the badness of his word. And so God's word strengthens us in afflictions. And we have here a call and an apologetic to tell us how God is so good and that there's goodness in affliction that he sends and that his word is good. I'm going to show you this slide uh, because we don't capture in our English Bibles how this stanza, these eight verses, reflect uh, and emphasize the goodness of God. It's this series of verses is all about the goodness of God and the goodness of his word. Can you throw that slide up? So, say the word tov. Tov, okay, tov. Now, that is the word for good. And so, out of these verses, you can see in the Hebrew that five of them all start with the word good. Good, you have dealt with your servant, Lord, according to your word. Good judgment and knowledge teach me for your commands I have believed. Good you are, and good you do, teach me your statutes. Good it is for me that I have been afflicted, that, that to the end I might learn your statutes. And good is the law to me from your mouth, and more than, ten, than thousands of silver and gold. Word, the word good, you know, is, is a rich word, and it, it has a very uh, broad meaning, uh, meaning pleasant, agreeable, good, beautiful, beneficial, best, better, Choice, fine, favorable, delightful, festive, cheerful, generous, excellent, perfect. It doesn't get any better than good. <laughs> you know, when God ended the creation after creating the heavens and the earth and man and woman in the garden, uh, he used that term. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. Uh, our confession of faith asked this question. This was a question that... Uh, in the Westminster Divines, there was a point they were trying to describe God. What was God like? And they were trying to compress and condense in a single definition the nature of God. And there was this young minister in that assembly. His name was Samuel Rutherford. And it goes that, that when they asked this question, they were stumped and they couldn't figure out how to describe God and they, they closed the assembly, and they asked Samuel Rutherford to pray. And he says, Oh God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in your being, your wisdom, power, your goodness, uh, goodness, uh, wisdom, power, and love. And in that definition, they said, Okay, we're going to use that. Uh, but the word goodness in that phrase, give thanks for God is good, his love endures forever. The goodness of God, what is the goodness of God? And here, let me uh, let you hear a little bit of J.I. Packer's definition of what goodness means. When John says God is love, what he means is that the Father, through Christ, has actually saved us formerly lost sinners who now believe. This sovereign, redemptive love is one facet of the quality that Scripture calls God's goodness. That is, the glorious kindness and generosity that touches all his creatures and that ought to lead all sinners to repentance. 
There's other aspects of his goodness that are his mercy, compassion, his pity that shows kindness to persons in distress by rescuing them out of trouble, a long-suffering, forbearance, slowness to anger that continues to show kindness towards persons who have persisted in sinning. You know, when Moses asked to see the glory of God and God put him in the cleft of the rock, God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And so we find this definition of goodness, and we see the Lord uh, passing in front of Moses, and in that 34th uh, passage of Exodus, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How God describes himself in all of those attributes of his compassion, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, those all describe the goodness of God. So God leads in his goodness. God ends in his goodness. We say God is love, and that means God is good. And so we often say in this church, God is good all the time. And that is what God's goodness is about. <clears throat> Packer continues to fit God's faithfulness to his purposes, promises, and people is a further aspect of his goodness and praiseworthiness. Humans lie and break their word. God does neither. In the worst of times, it can be said, his compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. And though God's ways of expressing his faithfulness are sometimes unexpected and bewildering, looking indeed to the casual observer and in the short term more like unfaithfulness, the final testimony of those who walk with God through life's ups and downs is that every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. And so in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. In Christ, all of the goodness of God is expressed. And so God indeed is good. God is good all the time. And the psalmist reminds us here in the Psalm 119 that even in our afflictions, God is good. God's afflictions on us are for our good, and God's word is good because it strengthens us in our afflictions. The goodness of God, the goodness of afflictions, and the goodness of God's word we're going to look at. So the goodness of God. God, good you have dealt with your servant, Lord, according to your word. The goodness of affliction. Good it is for me that I've been afflicted that to the end I might learn your statue. How many of us, you know, this is probably why this, this verse kind of just shot out to me, you know, because we don't normally think about this. It was good that I was afflicted. It was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Can you say that? It was good that I was afflicted. <laughs> I mean, most people don't use that kind of language when they're afflicted. The psalmist came to learn this. It was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Often we're tempted to believe only in the evil of affliction. And finally, the goodness of God's word. 
Good is the law to me from your mouth more than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And so I have found this week, as I've been reflecting on this particular passage from Psalm 119, a sermon, a message by this English pastor, Thomas Watson, who uh, lived 400 years ago to be a real bomb, a real, a real encouragement and comfort. And actually, the sermon is titled, A Consolation in Affliction. And it's from this passage of Psalm 119. And the psalm, he says, is the marrow of the Bible. They are both for delight and use. The psalm is full of divine and spiritual matter. It was composed, if not sung, by the sweet singer of Israel, and there it falls into two parts. God's kindness to the psalmist, that he dwelt well or dwelt good to him, and the psalmist's grateful acknowledgement of his favor. You have dwelt, dealt well or good to your servant. And so, this is going to be a rather dense... I'm going to, what I've done in this message is I've tried to compress and tried to sift some of the best thoughts that he has preached here. So you're going to get mainly in the next few minutes a com- compressing and a condensation of what I think is some of the strongest theology and preaching on affliction and God's word. So try to bear with me as I work through this, and I hope that you'll capture the treasure that we have about what God says in his word about affliction and suffering. Doctrine one, that God deals good or well with his people. God has dealt graciously with me. God's people often fail to respond to his love, but through, but though they deal badly with God, God deals well with them. God's dealing well with his people rises from the intrinsic goodness of his nature. God is love, and from this flow acts of royal bounty. And he asked this question, in what ways does God deal well or good with his people? Answer, in enriching them with varied mercies, his paths drop fatness, as Psalm 65, 11 says. He feeds, adopts, and crowns them. Is not this dealing well with them? Objection. But how does God deal well with the saints when he lays his hand so heavy upon them in affliction? His pen is full of gall, and he writes bitter things against them all day long. Have I been plagued and chastened every morning? Psalm 73, 14 says, How does God deal well or good with his people when it fares ill with them? Answer, it must be held as an undoubted maxim that when the Lord severely chastens the saints, he deals well with them. But we are ready to question this truth and say as Mary to the angel, How can this be? Therefore I shall demonstrate it that when it goes badly with the righteous, yet God deals well with them. When the Lord afflicts, this is the first point, when the Lord afflicts the saints, yet he deals well with them because he is their God. David was in the depths of sorrow, yet he could say the Lord was his portion. God is an exceeding great reward, Genesis 15 says. He is a whole paradise of delight. He is the good in which all good is contained. He is he who has God for his God, all his estate 
lies in jewels. Here is enough to compensate for all their troubles. What can God give more than himself? He gives himself to us in our afflictions. Two, when it goes badly with the godly, yet God deals well with them because while he is inflicting evil upon them, he is doing them good. The Hebrew reads, you have done good to your servant. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. David does not say, it is good for me that I have been in prosperity, but that I have been afflicted. God does his people good by affliction in two ways. Affliction makes the godly grow wiser. Affliction is a school of wisdom. Affliction reveals pride, earthliness, unmortified passions, which they could not have believed was in their hearts. Have you ever experienced that? <clears throat> you ever find under affliction that you, ex sins were revealed in the pressure cooker in the crucible of life that you didn't realize that you had struggled with? <laughs> affliction cures the eyesight to see oneself. B, affliction promotes holiness. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12, when prosperity makes grace rust, God scours us with affliction. The godly are thankful for their sufferings. God, by the wholesomeness, wholesome discipline of the cross, makes them more humble, more conformed to Christ's image. The sharp frost of affliction bring on the spring flowers of grace. Now, if God, while he is chastening, is doing us good, then surely he deals well with us. Three. There's only 10 points here. Just hang in here. I just want you to capture this wealth from this passage. When God puts his children to the school of the cross, yet deals with them because he does not leave them without a promise. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. God knows our frame that we are feeble and weak. Our flesh is not made of brass, as Job 6 says. The Lord will not try us above our strength. He will not lay a giant's burden upon a child's back. God will not stretch the strings of his violin too hard lest they break. If God should strike with one hand, he will support with the other hand. Either he will make our yoke lighter or our faith stronger. This promise is honey at the end of the rod. <laughs> Four, God deals well with his people when he afflicts because afflictions are preventative. Afflictions prevent sin. To keep me from getting puffed up, Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from getting proud. Prosperity, he says, is like opium, a drug is ready to make men fall asleep in sin. God awaken, awakens them by the voice of the rod and so prevents a spiritual lethargy. Two, afflictions prevent hell. We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world, 1 Corinthians 11 says. It is not goodness in God when he lays is it not goodness of God in God when he lays upon us light affliction and saves us from the wrath to come? 2 Corinthians 4. What 
is a what is a drop of sorrow which the godly taste compared to the bottomless sea of wrath that the wicked must drink. Five. When God corrects, he deals well with his people because all he does is in love. Afflictions are sharp arrows, but they are not but they are shot from the hand of a loving father. Afflictions are sharp arrows, but they are shot from the hand of a loving father. God chastening the godly is in love. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, Revelation 3 says. When God has the look of an enemy, he has the heart of a father. When Abraham lifted up his hand to sacrifice Isaac, he loved him. Just so, when God sacrifices the comforts of his children, he loves them. Was not God severe against Christ? Yet it was proclaimed by a voice from heaven, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Well then, if God only sends love tokens to us, he deals well with us. Number six, when God afflicts, he deals well with his people because he takes away nothing from them, but gives them that which is better. What damage can it be to a man to lose his pennies and have gold given him? If God takes away health, he gives holiness. If he takes away a child, he gives a Christ. Is not this better? God takes away a flower and gives a jewel. Number seven. When God afflicts his children, he deals well with them because he gives them his divine presence. I will be with him in trouble, Psalm 91 says. God never promised us a charter of exemption from trouble, but he has promised to be with us in trouble. Better be in a prison and have God's presence than on a throne and lack it. God's presence gives us courage. Was not Christ with the three Hebrew children? Did he not go with them into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods, Daniel 3 says. He who is the second person in the Trinity made the fourth person in the furnace. Eight, God, in afflicting, deals well with his children because he gives them that which makes amends of their afflictions. He drops in the oil of gladness. He makes them gather grapes from thorns, your sorrow shall be turned to joy, John 16 says. We have a godly man's suffering, but we know not what joy he feels as he hears the roaring of the sea, but do not see the gold at the bottom. Philip Hesse said that in his trouble he felt the divine consolation of the martyrs. Here was honey out of the lion. The saints have been sometimes so sweetly enlarged that they would rather endure their afflictions than lack their comforts. I had a friend, uh, Steve Estes, who preached here some weeks ago, whose father was one of the most godly men that I knew, uh, died at home and decided not to take any kind of, like, uh, painkillers. And I remember that he decided he wanted to feel the force and the weight of pain because he knew ultimately it was the way God, he was experiencing God, as he was crying out and praising God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that you not take painkillers in those moments, but some 
find an experience in God that we know little about. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. Paul had his prison songs. The bird of paradise could sing in winter. God turns the bitter waters of Mara into wine. He keeps his cordials of, for cases of fainting. When the saints taste most of the wrath of men, they shall feel most of the love of God. Thus the Lord candies his wormwood with sugar. <laughs> Nine, when God corrects his children, he deals well with them because these afflictions or hot trials do not last long. After the clouds, the sun appears. I will punish the descendants of David because of Solomon's sin, though not forever. God will love forever, but not afflict forever. He will before long give his people a right of ease. A sinner's best and a saint's worst are but short. Affliction is called a cup, Ezekiel 23 says. The wicked drink a sea of wrath. The godly only sip of the cup of affliction. And God will shortly say, let this cup pass away from them. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away, Isaiah 35 says. As affliction has a sting to torment, so it has a wing to fly. And finally, 10. When God puts his children to the school of the cross, he deals well with them because his afflictions lead them by the hand to heaven. By the cross, we mount to heaven. Our light affliction works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4 says. Upon the dark color of affliction, God lays the golden color of glory, a weeping saint. What a blessed change you shall shortly have. You shall change your pilgrimage for paradise. You shall have your wish. Are, your rich, are riches desirable? You shall have gates of pearl. Is honor desirable? You shall have white robes. Is pleasure desirable? You shall have the joy of the Lord. And Psalm 16 talks about the eternal delights in his right hand. Oh, think what it will be to be sweetly immersed in the river of life and bathe in it, the honey streams of God's love forever. Think what the beautific, beautific vision will be. Oh, what a compensation this will be for all a Christian's trials. A sight of, his, of this bliss will make him forget his sufferings. One sunbeam of glory will dry up the water of his tears. If God deals well with us when he chastens us, then it is fitting for it to cherish good thoughts of God. We are prone in adversity to think harshly of God. This arises from pride. Such think themselves better than others and that they have deserved better at God's hands. And now pride vents itself in murmuring. Oh, let us take heed of having harsh thoughts of God. The patient has no cause to think badly of the physician when he prescribes him a bitter potion, seeing it is in order to a cure. God's afflictive providences are the strokes of a father, not the wounds of an enemy. God smites that he, might, he may save out of the bitterest affliction God distills his glory and our happiness. There's a lot of dense things there. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I hope that you captured the wealth of what Thomas Watson is trying to reveal to us from this psalm. You know, this encouragement 
that the psalmist had concerning God, affliction, and his word was a fight for him. He just didn't get there. Thomas Watson just didn't get to this place of seeing God's goodness in our affliction and the goodness of his word in our affliction. The psalmist says, the insolent smear me with lies. And so we constantly are hearing lies when we are under the pressure of suffering. What is the answer? What is the weapon? What is the offense or the defense? It is the word of God. It is the goodness of God's word. And this one slide uh, that we have, it talks about good is the law to me from your mouth. It's more precious than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And every single one of these stanza, he goes back to the worth and the value of God's word. Good judgment and knowledge teach me for your commands I have believed. Good you are and good you do. Teach me your statutes. Good it is for me that I've been afflicted, and for in the end I might learn your statutes. God's word is the precious ointment. It is the precious means of grace for us to grow. In another place in Psalm 119, says, My comfort and my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. My comfort and my suffering is this. Your word preserves my life. In Psalm 119.92, If your law had been, not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law was not my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. As we close, the word of God is the means of strength and grace for us when we are in the, in the throes of our afflictions and suffering. And I know in this place, or at this point, there are many here who are feeling the heavy hand of God on their lives. Uh, some of you are experiencing great trauma in your family life. Uh, there are many here that are experiencing great trials with their children. Uh, some of you are facing great economic stress and strain. Some of you are in broken relationships. Others of you are in broken marriages. Uh, you are facing trials, and you wonder, where is God in all of these struggles? Why is he letting me go through this? I hope that you will hear the psalmist speak these words of grace to you, that good you are, God, and good you do. Teach me your statutes. He wants to speak words of peace into your heart. He wants to give you an expression and experience of his comfort and his love for you. Let us encourage each other, each other in this, and let us be passionate for God's word as a church. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us Psalm 119. Uh, and this was just one little section uh, of these 22 stanzas, one section that just exalted in the goodness of you, God, and the goodness of your word, and how you work good in our afflictions. And God, we pray that you would allow your word uh, to sink deep into our hearts, that we could say with the psalmist, it was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your decrees. Amen. Let's stand together.
As we, I think we're going to, are we have a closing? No, we don't. Okay. I'm going to just give a benediction. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each of you now 